0: Natalie Jackson, and this is C Sporty, B Sporty. It's season three, and we are talking to some legends of English football, but maybe not the ones you've heard much from before. Why? Because it's a Euros summer, and the Euros are in England. England 2022 is happening all across England, from Brighton to Wigan, and we are getting excited about it. This week, I am joined by journalist, academic, and author, women's football expert, Carrie Dunn. Carrie, welcome. Thank you very much. Hello. Or should that be welcome back? You have, welcome in fact, back. appeared on yeah. the podcast before. You were on our very first pilot episodes, were you not? Way back in the depths of lockdown 1.0 in 2020. Yeah, uh, I think I was the one
1: who kept saying to you, you should do a podcast, it would be fun. I'm so bored.
0: Please invite me. Yes, yeah. you were. <laughs> and nothing else was happening. And I said, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then nothing else was happening. And we said, OK, let's try And I remember saying, we'll just have a chat And if it's rubbish, we'll just have a chat and catch up (laughs) Here we are, a thousand downloads later Yeah,
1: two years on, wow
0: Yeah, how are you? How have the last two years been?
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting couple of years, hasn't it? I think when we were first speaking in the first episode It was kind of like we weren't quite sure what was happening with sport at all But um, yeah, it's been... It's been an interesting couple of years. It's been good to get, obviously, fans back into, into Stadia. And it's been fascinating to see the way that the uh, the Champions League has been unfolding. It's been fascinating to see the way that the Euros qualification happened. And, of course, the changes at the top of the England hierarchy as well.
0: Crazy, crazy times in so many ways. Before we dig too far into the chat, I, we need to play our game the game that has remained the same from the first two series because I love it and I find it very interesting. It's the game I call 11 things everyone should know about Carrie Dunn. We don't always play it about you. It's about whoever. so that'd be weird. That would be really strange. <laughs> People might not know the answers. Okay, um, it's quick fire. There's no wrong answers. You're welcome to change your mind, but you need to do it quickly. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? I'm focused, let's go. Okay, let's go. Cake or pie? Cake. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Invisibility or super strength? Super strength. Warm weather or cold weather? Warm weather. Love Actually or Bend It Like Beckham? Ooh.
1: Love Actually, even though I have many problems with that film.
0: Controversial. Hot chocolate or coffee? Coffee. Digital watch or analogue watch? Analogue watch. Box sets or movies? Movies. Singing or dancing? Singing. (laughs) I enjoyed that. Uh, Watching football or watching tennis? Watching football. Silly question. Uh, Cardio or weights? Cardio. That's it. That's 11.
1: (gasps) I could do a whole podcast episode on my problems with Bend It Like Beckham as well as love actually. Both very problematic films.
0: <laughs> they are. And yet, both like <laughs> seminal films in the existence of so many of us. Tricky. I totally agree. Now that is a podcast for another day, isn't it? Both of them. <laughs> if either of them came out today, can you
1: imagine the furore there would be about both? Oh my goodness. They really would.
0: And it, it makes you place life in those times, doesn't it? And the fa- really? the way we felt about those at the time I think is interesting
1: absolutely I mean I was it's be irrelevant to everything we're going to talk about for the next half an hour or so but I was reading this uh, message board the other day they're talking about Wicked the musical and someone was saying they hadn't seen it for kind of five or six years and they'd gone back to it they didn't think it was as good and perhaps it's a problem with the show and I was like I don't think it is I think you're just watching it because you're and you're six years older and you just feel differently about it now and I didn't want to break it to them, that that's what happens when you get older. <laughs> you look back on things that you loved and realise, actually, there are issues with this.
0: Oh, I genuinely think bent It Like Beckham is why I played football at uni. When I first played football, I think that is why... Because it fully blew my mind that girls could play football. And that sounds insane to me now, given what I do and everything else.
1: Do you know what? I don't think... I, th- I think people of your age, footballers of your age, because you guys are like a little bit younger than me, I think that's quite a common thing. There are lots of footballers, you know, kind of in their kind of early 30s now who say that Bend It Like Beckham was, you know, really seminal for them, really influential Whereas I'm a little bit older and I remember having watched women's football on television when I was a kid. And that completely blows slightly younger people's minds that in the early 90s, there was women's football on television. So, yeah, it's just kind of intergenerational
0: thing, I think. And I think that is, and I know we are, this series is about women's football. It's about the women's Euros. I didn't say it in my intro, but it's tricky because we we talk about women's. Well, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about okay. Firstly, how exciting is it that the Euros are happening in England? It
1: is very, very exciting. Um, Again, people might not know that there were actually Euros held in England in 2005. Yes, I went. I painted
0: my face with a, a... Um, white and red flag and I went I was just at university and playing football not particularly (laughs) well but loving just this discovery of women's football and I went I think I watched England play Finland in Manchester maybe yeah there was true yeah
1: and so that was that was kind of a huge thing at the time there was this idea that this was going to be then a big catalyst to really push women's football and then nothing really happened for another kind of five or six years. So this is kind of our, it's our second go around. Maybe this time, this will be the time
0: that that it gets kind of properly pushed. But we do call it the women's euros, don't we? And I I, wanted to ask you this for a while. Does that annoy you? Yes. It infuriates me. Loads of things annoy me. And that's one of them. Not Um, many things annoy me,
1: but this is one of them. No, it's infuriating. I hate that the Women's Super League is called the Women's Super League. I I hate all of this. Um I think cricket has done a really good job in that they are now saying, you know, the men's ashes, the women's ashes, uh, the women's World Cup, the Men's World Cup. So you know, cricket, for goodness sake. Cricket, it's the most
0: most archaic sport there is. Cricket, if cricket can do it, surely football. But I think it I think it really does and I remember was it Arsenal ladies for a while? said that they were dropping the ladies and that they were only going to refer to the gender of the teams when there was confusion there was risk of confusion. Yeah. When yes. is there not risk of confusion?
1: Well, it's 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 a silly one. It's really silly. I mean, I, I was glad that Arsenal changed to Arsenal women. But um, you know, I know that within clubs you still get people talking about the first team and the women's team.
0: On websites, you see the same thing? I yeah, when when you,
1: when you when you yeah when you're looking along lonely tabs do you drop down to buy tickets or whatever yeah it's ridiculous First team, come on guys under 23
0: yeah. under 21 all of these age groups women women yeah yeah and do you think this is just because that that drives me insane and I think it's uh, people will say oh that's maybe not important like maybe that's not the biggest issue here I just think it's such an important thing around language the yang- language that we use and the default male aspect of football I do think is problematic we talk in schools about you know they might have the year six football team and then the year six girls football team mm. and that's the problem because it's making it default a boy's activity which I think in, in a lot of ways it it sometimes still is
1: yeah absolutely and I think you're right it's language the language you choose to use is important and yes you're right that it sets a default and the reason that I bang on about this or I pick people up on it if they're doing it is because it's an easy fix this isn't kind of something that's gonna involve too much effort just remember to say men's and women's that's not difficult it's not going to affect club branding just to change your website text that's not difficult. That's an easy win. And it lets women and girls know that football is for them as well as the men and the boys. I mean, my my friend has a little girl who just started playing football and she went to buy her an England shirt. And of course, she looked at the website and it had men's shirts and boys shirts. It didn't have like adult and juniors. It was men's and boys. So she wrote a letter and complained. So hopefully they've learned a lesson from that. But That's the kind of thing I mean. Really, really straightforward, easy fixes so that everyone knows that football is for them.
0: It is subtle things though, isn't it? But subtle things that other people might not notice that then we do notice. I'm a Man United fan um and I have just bought my little one Lexi she's coming to her um first game at Old Trafford so I'm very excited about this because I grew up supporting Man United and it's a women's game and I have bought her a a football kit and yesterday I was buying it on the website and um I could pay it was like it was outrageously priced children's football kits for starters it's going to be far too big for her because it is at least two years or, or too old for her but it will fit for a long while um it won't fit for a while but then it will we'll we'll get there wear a dress (laughs) yeah yeah, she yeah she'd be she'd be all about that um so yeah so but I could pay x amount for the kit then I could pay for if you wanted a name on the back and I always loved that the idea of having a name on the back um we weren't always allowed that when I had um football shirts as a kid. And then when I got older, that's like a big deal, isn't it? You know, when, you're, when you've when you got your name on the back of the shirt. Um, and I could pay extra for personalization for a name on the back. But there was a list of names that you could have for like a certain set price. And then it was all you could have custom. And none of those were names I recognized because I don't really watch the men's game anymore. Uh, why am I paying more? If I wanted to have mm. one of the, the female players on there, I'd have to have it as a custom shirt. Anywho, she hasn't, she hasn't got that because... I just couldn't afford it. <laughs> yeah, ne- needed yeah. to take a bank loan to get a name on the back of a shirt. So she just has the kit, but it stuff like that. Actually, it's it's so important.
1: It is, and you know, not to single Man United out, but they ha- they have had issues around their women's or the women's football setup in previous years. Obviously, they have a professional side now, but before they didn't have any women's football setup, and they were getting. And they were getting, you know, female models to model their kits rather than having female players. Because they didn't have any female players. So again, it's 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 a learning curve, obviously, for everybody. But um, yeah, I think Man United have some catching up to do if that's the case
0: with the uh, with the players. Yeah. And I think it's probably just that people haven't thought, but why haven't people thought is where I get to. Right. So let's let's rewind, shall we? Because you've written some brilliant books about women's football. My favorite are the Royal of the Lionesses. 2016 that was and the pride of alliances which is 2020 i am biased because i did feature in that with um <laughs> fans of women's football club who i was the director of at the time and it, yeah i, I love the way you told our story for the season that you followed us so um but i want to talk about your new book shortly but let's go back a bit because the the um subject of your new book is a book that i'm super excited about and i feel like we've been talking about this for so long um yeah and I just, I want to read it because I want to know. It's about the history of women's football in England. And actually so much of that is still so unknown. Tell me, let's rewind for people who have never heard any of this and don't really know uh, much about women's football and maybe don't know why they don't know much about women's football. um, Tell us about the ban. Let's start there.
1: Okay, so when football first started in England in kind of organized setups in the late 19th century, um, women's football kind of ran parallel to men's football. There were kind of invitational games and women were playing in villages and stuff. Perhaps not in the numbers that men were, because leisure activities quite often are very male dominated because it's like their time off work or whatever. But women were playing football and then the First World War happened and lots of women's teams were playing football matches to raise money for troops, for charities, for hospitals etc etc and there was a very famous team at the time called Dick Care Ladies who later became Preston Ladies Um, there was a team in St Helen's, so there's kind of a hotbed in the northwest but there's also lots in London and, and the southeast and southwest as well and they were attracting tens of thousands of people to their matches. They were making loads and loads of money. And then, obviously, the war ended and the men came back and their league started up again and people were still going to women's matches. And the powers that be were concerned, I think, about uh, the women's setup not being under their control and also drawing a lot of attention. Um and they kept warning men's teams not to play women's teams and you know, saying to them, yeah, don't let them have your grounds. But it didn't do any good. And then finally, uh, they issued this dictat saying the game of football is quite unsuitable for females. And they said that men's teams should not give permission uh, to women's teams to play on their affiliated pitches, um, that any men uh, who were Helping women play football would be uh, sanctioned forthwith, and the powers that be also kind of hinted that there were financial irregularities. So they were just kind of trying to cover up this, um, this <laughs> fairly sexist ban was going. Oh, but you're not running it properly, which didn't necessarily seem to be the case. But yeah, they put this ban down at the end of 1921, and it was basically in place in England for the next half a century. Um it wasn't until nineteen into, into the early nineteen seventies that it was officially lifted and even then it wasn't you know women's football wasn't really still being encouraged. But the important thing to note is that although the football authorities had told women not to play football, they did not stop playing football just because these men told them not to. They set up their own teams, they played on rugby pitches and parks and scrubland and whatever they could manage to sort matches out on. Um, the Ditka ladies that I mentioned a little while ago, they toured the world. They're essentially kind of a representative Britain team. They played in France, in the USA, in Canada. They were going everywhere and they were drawing big crowds still. It wasn't just like a novelty thing. And then uh, leagues, women's leagues were being set up. Women were running these leagues for themselves uh, this is just in the first half of the 20th century so you can imagine how difficult that must have been all volunteers uh see no okay no common phone lines no internet certainly doing things
0: by post quite often um and even locations yeah. of where to play yeah. you've got you know the record numbers of sort of 53,000 people were at goodison park to watch a game in 19 it was that 1920 well, where if you're then playing on a bit of scrubland, you can't have fifty three thousand people rock up to that. The logistics, tricky.
1: No, it, it was it was really, really hard. And there are some great historians have done some fantastic work on kind of keeping these stories alive. Um, Gail Newsom is the uh is the uh absolute authority on the Dick Care ladies and what was happening then. She's uncovered some brilliant stories and There are so many fantastic stories that are only really just coming to light. Um, A player called Lizzie Ashcroft who took over the the Preston ladies' captaincy. Um, Her grandson, Stephen Bolton, is a historian and he didn't know that she played football until he found this kind of case in the attic of his uncle's house, I believe it was, with photos of her. And he had never seen any photos of her as a young woman either. He'd only kind of seen her as an, as an old lady and just discovered this whole alternative footballing career that he never knew about. So that's all coming to light as well. So I've spoken to Gail, I've spoken to Stephen and kind of brought some of these ideas together as well. And you probably heard lots of the stories around the Ditka ladies and uh, Emma Clark, who's billed as being the first ever. A black female footballer but there are question marks around that too whether the lady we've identified as Emma Clark is actually Emma, Emma Clark um was she black what was her heritage we don't know there's still lots of question marks as well so there are still so many things unanswered about the history of women's football because we're still so early on on in, in uncovering it people have not been so keen to uh, give a lot of airtime to a period of history I think they're a little bit embarrassed about Obviously, um, the FA were not encouraging women's football. UEFA weren't encouraging women's football. FIFA weren't encouraging women's football. When you say not so,
0: encouraging, I mean, there's not encouraging and there's banning.
1: Well, there's banning. But then also after that, you know, they were saying, OK, let's take it under our wing. But they still weren't really doing anything. They were saying, OK, let, let the girls get on with it. But they weren't really doing anything to help them. So... I mean, I was, I've i talked to some women who were playing you know, during the 70s and 80s and talked to them about, you know, their FA Cup experiences. You know, and I've said about, you know, you've you got to play your FA Cup final on a, on a league ground. What was that like? You know, expecting it to be kind of quite exciting. And they're like, you know, the pitch wasn't great necessarily. Or we were playing before a men's game. So we were getting some heckles and that kind of thing. So they didn't really have the choice if they were given a league ground, you know it's better than playing on on the part down the road, but it doesn't necessarily mean to say they were given the respect and the assistance that, that footballers would deserve. Is it respect does it come down to that? Is it
0: respect that we've been lacking up till recent times?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that that, that plays a big part in it, but then I think also because control and regulation of women's football was so fragmented um you might have seen during the world cup in 2019 the women's world cup in 2019 I should say um there was quite a lot of coverage of the lost lionesses they were called um an unauthorized team that went to Mexico uh, to play an unofficial world cup under the Chilton Valley manager a guy called Harry Batt and these girls and they were mostly girls. There were quite a lot of them were under 16 because they were going on their school holidays because the women who were at work couldn't get the time off work to go to Mexico. And the, the, they came back and the FA were, the women's FA and the FA at the time was like, no, you, you can't do that. you We're going to ban you. You're going to give you a suspension from playing because you can't do things without our say so. So there's kind of this idea of control, who's in charge, who's not in charge, who can do what, and this kind of levels of authority. Obviously, now we know who's running things and who's in charge and, you know, there's a, there are procedures. But as the FA acknowledged women's football and the authorities around the world started to acknowledge women's football, there were kind of still question marks around who could do what and who could answer questions and who had the authority to do certain things.
0: Ooh. Oh I find it so interesting because I think it all just ties in with just the wider society what was going on what was the role of women what was happening you know more broadly and actually what a I, well for us maybe what a, a sort of gender stereotype bucking non-conforming type thing football was for, for women to do for girls to do but actually was that was that the case in the 20s was it was it a bizarre thing for women to do still as a sort of stereotype? Yeah, I think a lot of leisure
1: activities work is still kind of questionable, but I still find the phrasing unsuitable for females quite interesting because you might expect me to say unsuitable for ladies. Now, ladies is a much more classed word as well, so it's not suitable for middle class and upper class ladies because it's, you know, it's a bit rough, it's, it's not a nice thing to do, inappropriate, people will see your legs, etc. etc. And interestingly, one um, of the women who was in charge of the British ladies at the time, a lady who used the name Helen Graham, uh, or Helen Matthews, um, said was very. she took a lot of pains to say in her media interviews that her team were ladies. They weren't working class ladies. They were proper ladies. And the fact that the FA statements is unsuitable for females that's that's the lot of you that's all of you working class middle class it's a bit more sort
0: of biological
1: like as if it's a a medical situation that's exactly what it is and we still see this now there's this concern that doing certain kinds of sport is going to make your womb fall out and we've still had that marathon running uh, up until relatively recently even in the past kind of 10, 15 years, I know that ski jumping, they've kind of not had the women doing the big jumps because they're worried about kind of what, what might happen to their fallopian tubes. Yeah, terrible. But yes, so I think I think that's kind of kind of part of it. But having said that, I, I have a little theory of my own that kind of in recent years, and yeah, probably still now, I think women's football has tended to be the preserve of middle-class women as as a general rule because they're the ones who have got the parents who are able to drive them about to whichever scarce training center there is um in my book, I talk to um, the wonderful lady, Pat Gregory, who was part of the women's FA and one of the leading lights of setting up in the first place. And her parents were not very keen on letting her go to Spurs by herself. She was a Spurs fan. And so she would have to wait to be accompanied to go. And she I think she was about 15 when she went to her first match. But when she decided that she wanted to play football and she found out that she wasn't allowed to this is in the late 60s, her dad was absolutely appalled that the council wouldn't let her book a pitch. He was like, I pay my rates, the council should let you book a pitch. So I think there's a certain amount of class capital in there, I suppose, I'm talking from an academic standpoint, in that obviously money buys you into um, a lot of, I'm going to say privilege, but I don't mean privilege. I mean, it gives you a a certain amount, a, a certain capacity, I suppose, to be able to Fight for your particular right to do a particular thing. And I think we still have this issue. I still think that it's difficult for working class girls and women to be able to play football, to find the facilities to play football, to find the money to be able to play football, because it's still expensive. So you have to pay your subs obviously at at a, at a grassroots level and women's football resources are more scarce than men's resources so you have to travel. If you have to travel you have to be able to drive or pay for your train fare. You have to, be able to take the time off work to do it. You have to be able to have that leisure time and you know, no caring responsibilities. So we still have some little question marks there which I think we're just starting to grapple with now. I don't know whether you saw the um. Stuff from football beyond borders on Twitter last week or so, and they were talking about um, the issue for working class girls and and their setup and they were kind of touching on the same points they were saying the England team that they see now doesn 't represent them and I found that really interesting because it 's something that i 've been kind of wondering for a while this kind of idea is this this middle class access i suppose to to women 's football and it's you know, obviously it's not It's not the player's fault because that's that's how the uh, route to the top has been. And, you know, we don't see it just see it in football. Obviously, we see it in tennis as well. Um, Tennis is another sport that I cover quite a lot, but it's an expensive sport to get into. Um, you need to be able to be driven around all over the place. You need to have your parents who to have some money behind you to be able to pay for all the equipment and the coaching. At uh, motorsport, you need to be able to have either independent money behind you or be able to get sponsors. So you need to, be able to have those contacts if you need to get sponsors. So sport and money is obviously very, very interlinked. And we do see this in the history of women's football. And I think that, see,
0: that, that fascinates me, all of that. And I think, but that, that ties in with the cultural side as well. You know, I see this, and I know it's it's sort of easy to look at it and go, well, women were banned from playing for 50 years in, in men's stadia. So then we've just been held back as a, a as a whole. But actually that, you still get, you know, the female footballers, Currently, the in England team, you know, we've interviewed um, footballers on the podcast. We've spoken to them for other things work related and they will tell the same story. You know, they they weren't playing for girls teams necessarily as children. They were playing for boys teams. They were cutting their hair short, whether intentionally or otherwise, mm-hmm. to fit in. They were seeking out higher levels of competition and finding themselves needing to play for boys teams. And and I I'm sort of it was very kind of you to say I'm in my early 30s I'm now officially late 30s but as I when I was a child um I know I now know of people who grew up with and around me girls who played football but I did not know they existed Mm. um and it never crossed my mind that I could ask to play football you know it wasn't my parents not allowing me I just it never crossed my mind and is that a product of two generations of women just not being seen playing football? Um, that then means that you know it's still normal when we go in schools; it's still normal for boys hogging the playground playing football or mm. preschool football. You know where where my daughter goes, it is still mostly boys. There's there's a handful of girls, but but not many, and maybe they just haven't noticed yet that they're the only girls. But it, you know, it's it was the case when I co- a couple of years ago when I coached um, under 11s and under 12s girls. Some of those girls, had. it was the first team they'd ever played for. They they loved it. They enjoyed it. They came on a Tuesday, they came on a Saturday morning to play games, but they maybe didn't touch a ball in between. Mm. Um, Is that a product of this cultural understanding of women don't play football?
1: I think it's a strange one. I really do. And I think things might have actually got got worse almost because the FA took full control of women's football in the early nineties. So the women's FA were in charge of it and they were working with the FA through the seventies and eighties. And then the FA took over in the early nineties. It was kind of a more of a gradual process, but I did play football when I was a kid. So I'm, as I said, I'm not that much older than you, but I did play football. Um, My local club had a girls team. We played at tournaments. Now I never remember thinking that was strange. I never remember thinking it was unusual. I know that I always, you know, I know that I knew that not all girls like football. But equally, I didn't think that it was weird for me to want to play football. And I will say again, there was women's football on the television then.
0: Yeah, that does I blow my watching... mind. Every time you say that, it blows my mind. Because I that I, that's not the word I can roughen. Often...
1: I watched women's football. Uh, I mean it only it was only kind of for the for the FA Cup final, but it was still on television. And you have to remember also in kind of 1990, 1991, there wasn't the same level of football coverage as we have now. It was maybe it wasn't even a game a week on a Sunday if we were if we were lucky. It was maybe once or twice a month on ITV. So we didn't have the same kind of blanket coverage of men's football. So the fact that we had this kind of showpiece women's game at the end of the season, it was a big deal and it was treated properly. And, you know, I remember watching players like Marianne Spacey, now the Southampton manager, a former England sister manager. I remember watching Kaz Walker, a fantastic striker for Doncaster Bells. Um, and I also remember, again, early, in the early 90s, there was a documentary about Doncaster Bells on the BBC. I watched that. That was on television. So this was all kind of happening when I was... 12 13 and you know we've talked about it before and I know that you talk about it in some of your work in schools the importance of media coverage and the importance of showing someone if you can see it you can be it that kind of little cliche but it's a truism I saw women playing football on the television I'm I've now spent my entire career writing about women's sport I write about women's football particularly I have Never, I I don't remember a time when I didn't really see women playing football once I was kind of old enough to understand what that really meant. So it is a weird little generational glitch, I think. I think women maybe five years older than me didn't have that because they wouldn't have seen it in the mid 80s, for example, because it wasn't on television then. Women five years younger than me wouldn't have seen it either because it wouldn't have had the same level of coverage. So it's a really odd little thing and I just think it's so important to kind of note that because it's so easily forgotten that it was on telly then and the Doncaster Bells, particularly the way they were dominant in, in the game. It was a really,
0: really big deal. People knew about that. Hmm, so interesting. And that's why I love your book. Cause I think it talks about these, um, the sort of history. It stops us losing that history. It stops us saying things like, Oh, you know, women's football is really big these days, isn't it? Well, yeah okay yeah you know <laughs> things are I mean to my mind things are improving but again it's it's from your starting point what's your starting point if you know if we'd if we'd looked 100 years ago or 105 years ago maybe at where women's football was would we say it's big now well probably not yeah absolutely and it's one of the things that
1: I've really loved about writing this new book is that you know I've looked at some newspaper records and um, dug out some quotes and things, but I've brought a lot of stories together. So that they're kind of out there individually, but to bring them together into one place and kind of dig a little bit deeper, I think is really important and to present them as a kind of timeline. So yeah, people know about the ban and Dick Care Ladies now, but do they know what's happening in between? Do they know about you know the Lost Lionesses story? Yes, okay, you know that the Lost Lionesses went to Mexico and... They weren't treated as the Fish England team. But do you know what happened to them when they came back? Maybe not. Do you know about... The real Mexico people. And- this is it. These exactly. are real people stories. It's amazing. I mean, talking to these girls, as I say, these girls who went to Mexico. And I'm just like, so you went to Mexico and you were 14. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, what did your parents say? So we can... You know, <laughs> looking at that now, I think, what, what on earth were your parents saying about this? Because they wouldn't have to bring home because, again, this is the early 70s. It would be re- really hard. There was no kind of instant kind of emailing or anything like that. And keeping in touch and being homesick, that kind of thing. Um, This brilliant stuff team of the late 70s and early 80s who won the FA Cup and then folded, what happened there? Um, The Doncaster Bells team, you know, why were they so good? Yeah, you know, how did they train? Um, didn't any of them kind of ever think that they wanted to play in a more competitive league at the time? The Arsenal quadruple winners. How did Vic Akers build that team? Why were Arsenal interested all of a sudden? Why did they start pl- plowing money in? Um, Southampton were a great team in the 70s. And then they kind of split up into like 18 different directions. And now they're coming back. And we saw them in the FA Cup o- over the fifth round weekend. So what is happening with all these different stories? How do they fit together? Do they fit together? And... What does that tell us about where women's football might be going in the future? Because it is so important to remember history. And if we go back to what we're saying right at the start of this conversation, that we had a Euros here 17 years ago. People don't know that happened. So if we can't even remember that relatively recent history and learn from that, (laughs) what does that tell us
0: about where women's football is going? I love it. I love all of everything you've just said. And I think it's the cultural side of it. These aren't just stories. And it's like all sport, you know, isn't it? Like the most interesting sports stories are the stories behind the actual sport. And I think with this, it's just so much of women's football exemplifies women's sport in general, you know, gender stereotypes around sport and the work that we do. And I think it's just such a clear, um, it's such a, a clear demonstration of the ways that the rest of the world and culture and how things are—you know—teams folding, teams interested in funding it, teams not interested in funding, and sending fourteen-year-olds to Mexico. Do you know, all, all of this is just part of the story. And that, yeah, I love that you're telling it. Well, um,
1: hopefully, I tell it.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. I'm excited. So, um, from your perspective, then, looking forward, what does women's football? still need. We know that it's improving, we know things are getting better. Question mark, are they getting better enough or, you know, comparatively given how big men's football now is, but what does it still need?
1: If we're looking at I guess domestic women's football, I think we need a period of kind of stasis with no more changes just to allow clubs to kind of find their level, for the talent pathways to be kind of properly established for grassroots setups to kind of get to grips with the way that we have a pyramid now. Um, I know that a lot of my colleagues in women's football journalism don't agree and they want to see more professional teams and they want to see it, uh, uh, the WSL and the championship um, grown uh, more quickly. I am, um, I guess, uh, a little bit more cautious than that. I think we've seen We we saw this season with Coventry United. We saw a few years ago with Notts County folding on the eve of the spring series season and then back and back and back in time, the number of clubs that have just kind of collapsed in on themselves because of the lack of funding, the withdrawal of a sponsor or whatever. And I think allowing women more time to kind of bed in, uh, hopefully off the back of some success this forthcoming summer, uh, would do the entire game a world of good. But... we'll we'll see i guess
0: we will carrie thank you so much for being a part of c sporty b sporty the podcast um how can we where can we get your book it is called unsuitable for females the rise of the lionesses and women's football in england where can we get our paws on it
1: oh it will be available in june in all good bookshops and all good online bookshops so um yes Please uh, get hold of it and let me know what you think of it. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Sparkle. Brilliant. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, it's been so good to talk to you. Likewise, Nat. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to C Sporty B Sporty from Totally Runnable Limited and C Sporty B Sporty CIC. For more from the team, find us at Totally Runnable on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you are loving our latest episode of the C Sporty B Sporty podcast, please, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Reviews are super important to small, self-produced, independent podcasts like C 40 B Sporty, and yours will absolutely help other people hear it too. Thank you so much, and have a fab day!